Well, back to the Gospel of Luke. We find ourselves at chapter 17. And we find ourselves here this morning at the end of what I would consider to be the the heart of the Gospel. Now, months and months ago, when we began paging our way through this Gospel, we discovered that Luke, as the writer, took real care to organize his thoughts and then carefully outline his presentation. And what we have here, really, in the Gospel is the product of a very thoughtful and inspired process. And I suppose that if we were to invite uh, Luke to be interviewed this morning and ask him to explain the gospel in one sentence, he would be able to do it. He'd organized it so well. Now, just picture that, if you will. You know, today we have with us Dr. Luke, uh, the writer of the best-selling gospel, uh, the Gospel of Luke. So tell us, Dr. Luke, in one sentence, what is your story all about? My guess is that he would probably open his Bible to Luke chapter 19, verse 10. And there, read the words that come in a very simple sentence. The Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. You see, within that one sentence, and I've repeated that and I've repeated that, and I hope you're getting that for yourself, uh, the entire purpose of Jesus Christ is actually laid out on display. And the whole gospel is arrayed from his coming, the Son of Man came, in the first few chapters where we find the description of his birth. His actual birth. He was a living, live person. He came. And then we go to his seeking and and the coverage of his three-year ministry, uh, reaching out with the kingdom of God, and then finally to his saving. And in the final chapters of the gospel, we find him betrayed and tried and crucified, but then coming alive again with resurrection power. It's all organized so well. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. That's the gospel in the simple terms. So it should come as no surprise that at the heart of the gospel, the central chapters of the gospel of Luke, which began really at at chapter 15, Jesus would reveal the heart of God, the heart that he has toward the lost. What is God's heart toward the lost? Now you may wonder to yourself, why would anyone, let alone the lost, actually matter to God? I mean, after all, God is complete, he's perfect, he's holy, he's majestic, he lacks nothing. Why would he have any need for anything missing? Why would he even have a heart for the lost? Why would they even matter to him? Some may make that a personal question, realizing that lostness really is a a human condition, that you're living without a, a clear sense of purpose, asking yourself, Questions, but finding no answers. Why am I here? Why am I alive? What is the purpose of my being? What is the reason for my life? And, 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 and finding ourselves living without that clear sense of direction. What am I to become? What must I be? What must I do to satisfy this purpose of this life? How do I relate to this world? How do I relate to others? That's lostness. Living without a clear sense of purpose or direction or of place. How do I make sense of this universe and of this world? And how do I make sense of such things as death and disease and tragedy and loss and conflict? How do I find myself a place in the world that is so broken and crumbling around me? It's a lost world and I'm lost too. I'm so, so lost. And what's worse, not only am I lost, but I also feel helpless. There's something flawed in me. 
As it reads in the Bible, in, in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapters 3, verse 11, it says, God has made us with eternity on our hearts, and yet not so that we can make out the end from the beginning or the beginning from the end. We have this frustration within us. There is something about me that can't make sense and connect any dots. Call it sin, but whatever it is, it has kept me at a distance from the one who does have the answers and the one who has created me. And and this distance has left me lost. And and, and with that feeling and that recognition and that understanding that I am lost, you may wonder to yourself, does God even care about my condition? You may read that one sentence and still wonder, the Son of Man may have come to seek and save the lost, that's fine as a general principle, but the cynical side of you may ask the question, but then does he really care about me? From chapter 15 through our passage this morning, Jesus answers that question quite definitively. Some of you have in your study Bibles a little added note at the very beginning of chapter 15 that reads, actually, God's heart for the lost, which explains the whole string of stories about a shepherd searching for a lost sheep, that one lost sheep, a a woman searching out a lost coin, that one lost coin, and a father with a prodigal son, and the stories just rebound and, and, and and, and, and cascade over each other, revealing the value and the passion that God has for the lost on a, on a personal level, not a generic level, but his concern for you and for me. So there should be no doubt of where his heart lies. And so it's no surprise that when we come to Luke chapter 17 and verse 11, coming toward the end of this particular section of the gospel, that the parables now become a reality. He's been telling stories, but now there's reality. And it becomes reality in a story played out in real life. Look at verse 11. Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled among, along the border between Samaria and Galilee. And as he was going out into a village, as he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and they called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. Just a a few notes that that set the scene. In the first few words here, we find Jesus heading out, really, this is a a, a pivotal moment for his life. He is on his final journey to Jerusalem, each step taking him closer and closer to the cross, to the ultimate passion. And, And by this time, it had almost become a given that his reputation was preceding him and that people were almost invited, uh, expected to take advantage of his presence to see what he could do. So from a distance, we find ten men calling out, ten lepers, ten diseased, discarded, hopeless, helpless outcasts, ten lost men denied access to society at large, let alone Jesus himself. And from that distance they cry, Jesus Master, have pity on us. Now, some of you in your Bibles may have it translated as mercy. God have mercy on me. And and that word has its literal root in the word compassion, which means have a heart that is stretched out. Stretch out your heart. Have mercy on me. Jesus, can you turn your heart toward us? Can you find a place for us in your heart? Not just with pity, but with passion. Turn that passion, compassion in our direction. 
There are times, I've discovered as a pastor, when people find themselves finally at that place of, where they're ready for a relationship with God, but they wonder to themselves, okay, now how do I do this? How do I settle this transaction? Uh, how do I pray? I don't, I've never prayed before in my life. What do I say? How do I address God? You say it's a matter of prayer, but I don't know what to say. And the answer here is fairly simple. Even from a distance, you can call out with utter honesty and humility, God have mercy on me. That's the prayer. doesn't take a Ph.D. to say it. And in answer to that prayer, the heart of Jesus is suddenly revealed. Look again at verse 17. When he saw them, he said, Go and show yourselves to the priests. Now, I want to pause for a moment at that verse. He, he has no need, really, at this point, to explain his method or his actions. There is no reason to prove anything to him. His heart is already revealed in his simplicity. He looks at them and he says to them, do you see that? He saw and he says. That's simple as that. And then he gave directions. Very direct, direct care. Now, at this point in the story, the focus turns from the heart of Jesus now to the heart of the lost and the seeker. From his heart to the lost, to the lost's heart toward him. What you find is that Jesus never forces himself on anyone. He gave, he saw them, he heard them, he answered them, and he gave them directions, but then it was up to them to respond. He doesn't force himself. There's an interaction and a choice made on their part toward him with a decision that they must make. And it's obvious that these ten then made a decision. Back to verse 14. And they went. (laughs) I, I, I can't imagine what must have gone in their minds. They're going, I, that's it? We're supposed to go to the priest looking like this? Uh, and they went. And as they went, we read there in verse 14, they were cleansed. Now Again, I want to pause for a moment because something very unique is happening. Something very special that is happening here. In the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus, chapter 13, verse 19, and chapter 14, 1 through 11, We discover that those who had leprosy were ordered by law to show themselves to the priests for a thorough inspection, but only when there was an indication that they were healed. It was kind of a quality control sort of thing. If you had leprosy and it appeared that you had been healed, you were to go to the temple, show yourself to the priest, and they would give you the stamp of approval. It was a way that, uh, for the priests to be the ones to officially lift the sort of banishment and then stamp you as acceptable in society once again. And you could carry that forward and, and people could finally shake your hand. What Jesus is doing here is is fully in line with the religious conventional practice. The only thing different here is, is that in Leviticus, a person didn't go to the priests until they had been healed. So, so Jesus' instructions pose a bit of a challenge here. In essence, while they had been crying out for a cure of any sort, Jesus offered what you might call the religious option, and then they had to make a decision. Will we go the religious route on this one and find ourselves healed? 
Some of you here who have made that first tentative decision, you've called out to God, and you've come to that particular place in your life where you have exhausted all other resources. So why not try the religious route? Who knows what steps these ten had already taken, what steps you may have already taken. But one thing is for sure, when Jesus prescribes the religious route, even though it was missing the key element of healing, they went ahead and took it. And in ways I would call that that first step of faith. The type that cries out, I believe, but help my unbelief. I believe and will obey. And in the obedience will find my unbelief helped. Now, I don't know for sure what happened between Jesus' order and their compliance. But, but all I know is that Luke, a doctor himself, writes in verse 14 that as they went, they were cleansed. Obedience to Jesus, even in the simplest point, even with the smallest step, is well worthwhile and is that step toward healing. The healing of lostness and the gathering together of soul. But now here's the challenge. Notice the next part. One of them, when he saw that he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and he thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. And Jesus asked, were not all the ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was, there, was, there, was, was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. Some of you have, may, may have it marked in your Bibles as your faith has saved you. If I would have written this gospel, if I would have been Dr. Luke, I would have only added, added just one word. Only one of them came to him. Only one of them fulfilled the attention, intention of God's heart for the lost. One was found, while nine out of ten simply didn't get it. One returned to Christ, but what happened to the other nine? We aren't told. We are told that they were cleansed, they were healed, but for some reason, for them, that was enough. Now, I I realize that we can only speculate here, but I can't help but think that for the nine, for so many else I know, 90% I know, all they expect out of the religious route is an immediate cure. For too many, the purpose of religion is really couched in very purely selfish terms. It's to fulfill and meet your needs, to forgive your sins. It is the ultimate self-help routine. And I hear people brag about being spiritual people as if they have finally accessed the menacing element of their being and then now can live their lives full and complete all by themselves. Certainly we are spiritual creatures and and, and religion does a lot to clean us up, but, may, but and maybe more than the point has to be made, <clears throat> Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is more than a religion because the point of it is down to a relationship with the God who loved you and gave himself for you. It is not for you to become independent and healthy for yourself. And while nine of the ten immediately headed out to rejoin their friends and family to party on, and there was one 
who returned to the scene of healing to say thank you to God and thank you to Jesus. And that one, Luke writes, was a Samaritan. That's kind of a backhanded way of saying the other nine ingrates were probably Jews who, it is implied, should have known better, really. Where are the other nine, Jesus asked. Did he ask it because he really didn't know where they had gone? I don't think so. I have to believe that that Jesus asked the question because it is his intention to etch into the soul of every disciple, you and me as well, the notion that no human transaction where value of some kind has been offered and received, in this case healing, is ever complete without a heartfelt thanks. One of my mentors, a big brother in ministry, Gordon McDonald, told the story of taking his three-year-old grandson to Chuck E. Cheese's for pizza and games. <laughs> when the evening ended, he wrote, his, his grandmother buckled him into his car seat and said, now you be sure to say thank you to Grandpa. There was silence. <clears throat> At first I ignored this backseat conversation, but then I changed my mind and I said, hey, look, you know Grandpa enjoys doing nice things for his grandchildren, especially when they say thank you. Still silence. (laughs) Did you hear Papa? I asked, a little irritated at this point. "Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. But there was still no thank you. Now I was uber-peeved, he says. Are you ignoring me? The volume of my voice amped up. And then his response came. Well, I am thankful, Papa. I just don't want to say it. From the mouth of a child came what many adults may necessarily feel, that there is something in many of us that finds saying thank you difficult or humbling or just plain unnecessary. The truth is, thanksgiving unexpressed is no thanksgiving at all. And take that back to that axiom of life. No human transaction where value of some kind has been offered and healing in this case is ever complete without that heartfelt thanks. But even more, it's not just a a warning to the lost to get back on their knees and being healed in their quest with Jesus. It also becomes a matter for all the rest of us to take to heart. My friend Gordon, he finished his story by saying this. He says, you know what bothers me? He says, maybe our grandson inherited his resistance to the thankful exchange through my family line and through my own actions as well. (laughs) Through my own predisposition to take things for granted and not live a life of thanksgiving itself. You see, nothing warms up relationships than the powerful Consistent, heartfelt exchange of thanksgiving. And what is true between us? Well, it's absolutely true between us and the Lord who loved us and gave himself for us. We we read that as an enduring truth in the book of Colossians, 
Where there we read, So then, just have you have, as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith, just as you were taught, and, what does it say? Overflow with thanksgiving for each and every blessing that he gives. I added that last part myself. But the lesson stands for both the lost who may be here today saying, I need to pray a simple prayer, Lord, have mercy on me. But also for the found. (laughs) Let your thanksgiving loose. Warm up that relationship with God. He loves you. He cares for you. He has you at heart. He really does. And as the words of the old hymns say, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in that wonderful face, and the things on earth will come strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace.